Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Give us wisdom and Lord, cleanse us from sin and trespass. Anything would keep us from you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your patience and your mercy over us, Lord, and your goodness. Lord, it will take all eternity for us to understand how good you've been to us, Lord, while we're here. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would deal with us and that, Lord, we would yield and to you. And regardless of the difficulties, Lord, you would just strengthen us and that we would not give in, that we would just look to you and that you would be the one that would be directing and guiding us, Lord. And, Father, as we just cry out to you. We love you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, please. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 tonight. And the message is entitled, Prayer for Enablement. And this is going to be part one. And this will take us all the way to the end of the chapter on the prayer. Paul, um, directed by the Holy Spirit, delayed his prayer to reveal information about his person, focusing on the messenger of the gospel in chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Paul also revealed vital information about the ministry of the gospel, focusing on the content of the gospel in verse 8 to 13. The first prayer was for illumination or revelation, that God would make the word alive in chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. His second prayer here was for the enabling and empowerment of their lives, verses 14 to 21. We not only need God to shed the light on the word, but then we need his ability to live it out. See, no matter how smart we think we are, from my head to my heart is a million miles. And what I know to be right, I don't always have the ability to do so. Now, we can get by on normal things, but things that are really crucial, things that are really extreme, things that really bring me to the end of myself, reveals to me my real condition. And I need his power. I need his ability to do the smallest of things. If I trust him for the smallest of things, then I pray that when the big things come, I will do the same. But he turns the light on, and then once we see what we need to do, we need to call upon him to be able to do that in obedience to him. The prayer of Paul for enablement can be divided into three parts here. Verses... 14 through 15, you have the introduction to prayer. 16 to 19, you have the intercession of prayer. And 20 to 21, you have the veneration in prayer. We want to look at the introduction of the prayer of Paul, which consists of Three things in verses 14 and 15. Let me read it. For this reason, I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Here's the three things that the introduction of the prayer focuses on and consists. First, 
You have the posture before God in prayer. Verse 14. The beginning. Then you have the person of God petitioned in prayer. The second part of 14. And then the people of God affected by prayer. Verse 15. Let's begin with the posture before God in prayer. Notice in verse 14. The Apostle Paul declared the reason for his prayer. For this reason. Paul now returns to the original intent of his prayer. For the Ephesians, the phrase for this reason points us back to verse 1 of the chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1. The phrase is exactly the same. These are the only two times that it appears in the letter. The reason Paul was praying regarding the salvation of the Gentiles is he was so in awe of all that God did. Paul was a Jew. Paul understood the hatred of the Jew for the Gentile. Paul understood the hostility of the Gentile towards the Jew. And Paul had been the recipient of that transformation on the um, Damascus Road, and he had never been the same. Of all people to send to the Gentiles, a Jew. <laughs> so much for today's philosophy of sociology and psychology that you need to empathize and be compatible to minister to someone. Really? No, it's the power of the gospel. It's the power of God that does it. If I have to relate to you with what you've gone through in life, if I have to know the sins that you've been destroyed by to be able to minister to you, then that's not the power of the gospel. I don't have to experience what you've gone through. I don't even have to be able to understand what you've gone through. All I have to do is to tell you what the power of the gospel can do for your life. And God does it if you trust Him. That's the difference. Stop and think if you had to, you're trying to minister to a guy who was a murderer. How do you do it if you have to be compatible with him? What if you never blew it sexually and how are you going to minister to someone who did? But see, that's not the qualification of the gospel. It's that we know Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Therefore, we can tell someone else he can do the same for you. Because we all fall in the category of sinners. It's the power of the gospel. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God to salvation, the Jew first and the Gentile. Romans 1, 16 and 17. He was in prison in Rome due to preaching to the Gentiles that they could be saved. 3, 1, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. That's why he's there. His sufferings were for the benefit of the Gentiles. Chapter 3, verse 13. Because of them. He wanted to bless them. He's communicating this, this mystery, this good news. As you know, Paul was commissioned to make known the mystery of Christ hidden in ages past. But now made known to the sons of men by the Holy Spirit and the apostles and the prophets. Chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. This had never been revealed in the Old Testament. It was in seed form and now it's revealed in the New Testament. Listen to what he says. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members, members of the household of God in chapter 2, verse 19. He's talking to the Gentiles directly at this point. There were Jews in the church, but he's talking directly to the Gentiles. 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. And they're Gentiles. They've been brought in. In whom the whole building being joined together grows into holy, a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2.21. Now they're the house of God. The Spirit of God dwelled in them. In whom you also are being built up together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, Ephesians 2.22. That the Gentiles will have the Spirit of God in their bodies. You realize that no Jew had the Holy Spirit in their body in the Old Testament, right? The Holy Spirit only came upon kings, priests, and prophets. And special people that he would call for the artistry of the Old Testament, the Ark or the Covenant and everything. But the average Jew, the Holy Spirit did not come upon them. The New Testament, the Holy Spirit indwells us, distinct from the Old Testament. Every believer in the New Testament who calls the name of the Lord is indwelled by the Spirit of God. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now notice the Apostle Paul described his posture as he prayed. I bow my knees. The expression is called metonym. A metonym is a phrase that is used to substitute another phrase that is closely associated. In this case, the phrase, I bow my knee, indicates and means prayer. The word bow simply means to bend and depicts the attitude of honor respect to a superior. The posture of kneeling indicates intensity at times also, urgency and a humble submission at different contexts. You remember Stephen knelt as he was stoned to death in Acts 7.60. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Peter knelt as he prayed for Tabitha in Acts 9.40. Paul knelt to pray with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20.36. The Lord knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22.41. Kneeling is a great position for prayer. Except don't try it late at night because you end up going to sleep. There are other postures in prayer revealed in the scriptures. The most usual posture by Jews and Hebrews was to pray standing. Matthew 6, 5 says, And when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. As surely I say to you, they have their reward. So they would stand in the street corners of the synagogues, and they would worship before people, and they would pray, and this way people would say, Oh my, aren't they? Righteous. They have their robes, their tassels, their phylacteries on their forehead, on, wrapped around their arm. Some of you have gone to Israel, you've been there at the Wailing Wall. In the plane, they're practicing before they get there. Luke tells us also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And despised others, two men went up to the temple to pray, 
one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as rise, raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Propitiate me, literally. Luke 18, 9-13. Standing. One near self-righteous, the other one afar off, thinking he's not worthy. Now you know what Jesus said. This man prayed with himself. God didn't hear him. The other one, he was heard. And he walked away, justified in God. The posture of prayer, standing and kneeling, is also demonstrated with hands lifted up. Hands lifted up can be an expression of one of two things, a surrender and a reaching out, longing to obtain. You have a little baby as you're standing over them, they go like this. They want to be picked up. person walks in the bank and says the hold up you're surrendering two different things but they both apply to prayer uh, Jacob remember surrendered to the angel of the Lord that's how he prevailed when he wrestled with the angel all night the Lord Jesus Christ the only way we win in prayer is by surrendering you don't win in prayer by wrestling with God that's resisting him, but by surrendering. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. 1 Kings 8.22, remember the dedication of the temple. In 1 Kings 8.54 it says, And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer in supplication to the Lord Yahweh that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees and his hands spread up to the heavens. So he began standing with his, knee, with his hands spread out. Then he moves to the altar. He kneels. His hands are up. And as you know, he finishes worshiping the Lord in all these different postures. Daniel 6.10 says, Now when Daniel knew that the waiting or the writing was signed, he went home and in his prayer, upper room with his window opened towards Jerusalem, and he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Kneeling. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fastings, and having torn my garment and my robe, grieving, mourning, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord Yahweh my God. Ezra 9.5. That's after the captivity as they came back. Crying out, pleading to God, wanting to hear from him, wanting to be touched by him, to be directed by him. The posture of being prostrated or face down to the ground is demonstrated by our Lord in the intense time as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 39, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, 
If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Luke twenty-two forty-four says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and tense. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground as the capillaries burst through the skin. And, of course, you can sit to pray also. So there are many positions you can take for prayer. E.M. Bounds said this about prayer in the church. Quote, when the church is in the condition of prayer, God's cause always flourishes and his kingdom on earth always triumphs. When the church fails to pray, God's cause decays and evil of every kind prevails. A prayerless pastor, church, and Christian are denying God's ability to direct and provide and man's privilege to ask and receive. I think prayer is one of the things that we underestimate and don't do enough. I don't think there's any exception. It just seems that we like to do and want to do and try to do everything that we can. And at last, when everything fails, then we say, well, let's pray. When it should be the first thing. It's, it's a natural, sinful thing. One of the best ways to learn to pray is by knowing the Word of God and studying the Bible in terms of the prayer life of individuals in the Bible. Our prayers being founded on the past works of God and admiration and gratitude resulting in our confidence in God. As we see men make their petitions and God answer. As we see God reveal what he wants to do and they doubt. And so he does it anyway or doesn't do it because of their doubt. That's why we're to study the word of God. Our prayers being what pleases him. That's what should come out of our mouth. Those things that please him. According to his promise. According to his will. Again, that's in his word. We can't find it any other way. 1 John 5, 14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But the will of God, again, is found in the word of God. It isn't something emotional. It isn't some emotion, something that's, you know, a hunch or something that's my desire. Um, I take things to God in prayer, and, and then I just let him sift them out. If they're his, they should lay on my heart. If not... Just throw them aside, Lord. Um, sometimes the Lord is directing it, and sometimes it's just me. So I lift these things to the Lord and wait and make sure that he's the one that's directing and guiding and confirming as I read, as I walk from day to day. The outward physical posture is rejected by God and not honored if the posture of the heart is not humble or genuine. David in Psalm 51, 17 says, A sacrifice of God 
or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, these, O oh God, you will not despise. The heart is very, very evil, very proudful, and everybody's different. Everybody has different areas where they have difficulty, different areas that are very difficult for them in terms of pride, where they want to be self-will. And those are the areas that God wants to deal with us all the time. It's the things that keep us from being all that we can be in the Lord is is the things that keep us from pleasing Him all the time. And so that willingness to, the intellect, the emotion, the will, that I set my will subject to God's, that I don't fight Him, that I don't resist Him, that I don't quench Him. Joel 2.13, we're starting the book of Joel Sunday. It says, so rent, rent your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. God wants to do good for you and myself. God wants to bless and direct. God wants to speak and to empower but I'm the only one that holds him back. I'm the only one that hinders him. Nobody can hinder God for me. Only me. Paul tells the Romans, those of uncircumcised heart. God looks upon the circumcision of the heart, not the outward circumcision as the Jews boasted about. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see a man as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord Yahweh looks at the heart. That's the beauty of our life, that God alone knows who I am and where I'm at. God understands our difficulties, our weaknesses, but he also understands our rebellions. There's a difference between weakness and difficulties and rebellions. Through the Bible, it said, don't harden your neck. Don't harden your heart. Don't be like that ox or that donkey that stiffens the front legs. That's different. Paul commanded three things to the Thessalonians, even though they had experienced difficult lives. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. First, regarding their attitude, he says, Rejoice always, in verse 16. If you know the Thessalonians, they didn't have an easy life. It was a war zone. Regarding their prayers, pray without ceasing, verse 17. That's good advice. Regarding their gratefulness, in everything, give thanks, for there's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Verse 18. I would imagine those things are good for us. The problem is, I think that, and, and why God has allowed it, I, I have no idea, but we live in such comfort compared to the rest of the church that we can pick or choose when we pray. Because most of the things we can do on our own. 
and uh, we're not driven to, um, to extreme poverty in the spirit, if you will, to extreme measures, like much of the churches around the world as they have to worry about having their house raided because having Bible study or breaking in and taking them to jail. Um, we, we've never encountered that. Paul gave the Philippians important spiritual counsel involving prayer. In Philippians 4, 6 through 7, he says, in verse 6, he says that we are to bring all things to God in prayer. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And then we're to pray and obey. Let your requests be known to God. And then we will reap and benefit the protection of our heart and minds, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. My heart is my motives. My mind is what cultivates and hardens me in sin. If I don't yield to the Lord. Because of what I think. How I think. How much I think. Or who I'm thinking about. Or whatever it is. So whatever captivates my mind. It either will. Break my heart. Pliable to God. Or it will harden it. Against God. That's why we are to bring every thought to captivity. That's why we're to present our body to be sacrificed, holy and accepting to God, which is our reasonable service. Not fashion ourselves to this world system, but being renewed, fashioned by the renewal of our mind to prove what is that good and perfect will of God. The renewing of our mind every minute, every second, every hour. The posture before God, the Father was kneeling by Paul. Good position. Notice, secondly, the person of God petition in prayer is to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul addressed his prayer to the first person of the Godhead, the Father. The Father is said to be the Father of Jesus from his divine nature, from eternity, and revealed in the Incarnation. The phrase to the Father, pros pater, means to face the male ancestor, the Father, the head of the family. The Father is responsible as the source in Jesus becoming a man. There's a play on words here, Father, pater, and family, patria. Now in Spanish, patria means nation, from patriot, same thing. United by common descent. Jesus was God and he took on flesh in the incarnation, as you know, in John 1, 1 and 1, 14. The word was God and the word became flesh. But this does not infer or teach that Jesus is a created being, but only affirms his eternal pre-existence. Jehovah Witness believe he's created. Michael the Archangel, Gabriel the Archangel, whatever. 
It's wrong. He's the visible form of the invisible God, Colossians tells us, but he was eternal from the beginning. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father. We've seen this already before, but Paul hits it from every angle because of the attacks upon either the humanity of Jesus or the deity of Jesus. Paul clearly says it is at the start and end of the letter in chapter 1, verse 2, and in chapter 6, verse 23, and many times in between. But he finishes and ends with it. Matthew believed Jesus was God. When Gabriel came, you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us, fulfilling the prophetic scriptures, Matthew 1.23, fulfilling Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6-7, and fulfilled in John 1.14, the preexistence of John 1.1. John says, Jesus is the Son of the Father, the love gift given to the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life in John 3.16. So the Father has given us his Son as this gift for all who are lost, all who are sinners. That's the gospel. Paul tells us Jesus is the mediator of Jew and Gentile for access to the Father by one spirit, Ephesians 2.18. Paul says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.20 Yet the Father is also said to be the God of Jesus from his human nature since the incarnation. So he's not only the Father, the source of the one who sent Jesus to be man, but he is also the God of Jesus from the point when he became incarnate. This is very, very clear. This is stated twice in the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 3 at the beginning and verse 17, both times. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus limited himself for a set time, as you know, divesting himself of his glory, never his deity. And he did this, becoming the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Uh, John 1, 29 and Philippians 2, 5 through 11. For that reason, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus came as the last Adam, just like the first Adam, to make reconciliation for the fall. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five, So that the first Adam had no disadvantage from the second Adam, or the last Adam, literally, that would come, Jesus Christ. And the first Adam had no greater advantage over the last Adam either. They were both exactly the same. For he came to reconcile us from that fall. The same abilities, the same capacities, the same testings, everything. Jesus became a vicarious sacrifice then as a substitute dying on the cross in our place, in our stead. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 
Peter um, also expresses this gratitude. He says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ out from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3 See, Jesus bore the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Psalm 22, 1 through 4. My God, my God, why has that forsaken me? Because you are holy. And he was sin. Now, the Apostle Paul, notice, declared his prayer to the Father according to the divine order of salvation. The term in our context refers to the chain of command in the Trinity. The Father is the source or origin, the Son is the channel, and the Holy Spirit is the agent. Three persons, yet one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one Savior. Yet Father and Son are co-equal by the titles of God and Lord. The Father stands in the place of priority by the fact that he always is mentioned first. Have you noticed that when you read the scriptures? He always is mentioned first. The priority is there. You can't miss it. Listen to Ephesians 1.17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the God of our Lord, who is he? The Father of glory. He comes first. May give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, Christ. In Ephesians 4, 5 through 6, Paul tells the Ephesians, God, the Father, placed all things under his feet, Christ, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in you all. The Father comes first. The baptismal formula reveals it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. Father comes first. The Apostle Paul says, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's both God and Father of Jesus Christ, who is blessed forevermore, knows that I am not lying. 2 Corinthians 11, 31. 1 John 2, 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So the Father is always first in line, but you can't get to the Father unless you come through the Son. Once you come through the Son, you've got to go to the Father first. <laughs> That's the chain of command. Now people get all freaked out and they go, wow, you guys are legalists. That's what the Bible says. Now, I understand. We go, Lord Jesus, I just, you know, God will take care of all that. But Jesus is very, very clear, as we've seen already, and we'll see it again, that he says, you ask the Father in my name. The chain of command. The priority of the Father in chain of command has nothing to do with inferiority 
but efficiency and effectiveness for the benefit of the saint, the believer. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. God the Father. There it is again. The scriptures are clear when it comes to our prayers. We are to ask the Father for all things. We are to ask all things in the name of Jesus Christ. John 14, 13 through 14 says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The Father. And in that day you will ask me, Jesus speaking, nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. 16.23 of John. The scriptures imply emphatically that prayer is a picture of total dependency on God. Psalm 73 Verse 25 and 26, God was um, dealing with this man. And um, he was concerned and having difficulties with God blessing and prospering the wicked. He says, you know, their children never get sick, their calves never die. They, they have everything they could desire. But it wasn't until he went into the sanctuary of the Lord, verse 17 says, then I understood their end. That means he went to prayer. So as he went to prayer, he realized all of a sudden that they're lost regardless of how much money they have and how fortunate they are through life to, to escape accidents or whatever it is. And, we, and he sees the godly and the faithful suffering and being thrown in prison and everything else. He says, you're looking at the thing backwards. And what brought him to reality and to be able to see things from God's perspective was prayer. That, that always always is the effect when we wait upon God. God is to be our primary love. He says in that psalm, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. God is to be our strength, our primary strength. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, he cries out in prayer. Prayer brought him back to reality. See, as I look around, as I think, as I ponder, as I figure out, as I'm frustrated, as I... Ah, everything's fussy, everything's... Shaky. 
But as I go to prayer and wait upon God and let him direct and guide, then it brings me back to reality. The greatest authority is Jesus. Listen to what he told his disciples when they asked him to teach them to pray. It's found in Matthew 6, verse 5, down to 13. Jesus gave an example of prayer for content, not for a pattern. Nor can it be the Lord's Prayer because there's a petition for forgiveness of sins and Jesus had no sin. So this is a model prayer for us, never. That's, the Lord's Prayer is the wrong title for that. You want to read the Lord's Prayer? Read John 17 when Jesus prays to the Father. <laughs> That's the Lord's Prayer. This is just a, a, an example of what our prayer should contain. In verse 5 there of Matthew, prayer is not to be used to bring attention to self in public. We may have mentioned it already, but it says either by manner of delivery, superlatives, or the use of tone or voice, praying in the street corner, standing. Sometimes people will do that in prayer meetings. They will use all kinds of flowery language and everything else, and people, ooh. Or sometimes people are afraid to pray aloud because they're embarrassed. They, they don't know how to pray, they think. You remember going to school when you were first young and the teacher wanted you to read aloud. You go, ooh, aloud? Prayer is not for man's ears, but God's ears. Praying to God in secret, he will reward us openly. Verse 6 says of Matthew 6. Prayer is not to be vain repetition as many religious prayers or mantras or um, mere information to give them to God. He knows all things. Verse 7 and 8 of Matthew 6. And prayer is to be addressed and directed to the Father. Verse 9. Pray in this manner, our Father. Now, he's not saying you and I praying to Jesus is not praying with them, saying our Father, to include him and the disciples. He never prayed like that. This is an example of prayer he's given them. This manner pray, saying, you say our Father, meaning them looking to God as their Father. But he never joined himself with his disciples and said, Our Father. Never did he ever do that. Verse 10. They're to pray for the Father's kingdom to come. His will to be done on earth as in heaven. Verse 10 there. Dependency on, on the Father for their daily bread. Verse 11. Asking forgiveness of our sins or debts as we forgive our debtors. Those who sin against us, verse 12. Oof, that's a toughie. But it is a condition for God to answer my prayer. If I don't forgive, then he does not forgive me. Read a couple of verses down after we finish verse 13. Those who trespass against you, you're to forgive as you've trespassed against others. It goes both ways. Verse 13. Praying for deliverance from temptation and the evil one, Satan, acknowledging the Father's kingdom, his power, and his glory in verse 13. That is because Satan will always come back at a more opportune time. He's like a lion 
growing about seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8 says. He doesn't go after non-believers. They belong to him. You do know that, right? <laughs> They're being held captive as well, the way you used to be, and I did. He goes after Christians. The book of Job tells us that Satan went before the throne of God and asked petition of Job. The hedge was lowered. The Bible reveals it is sin not to pray. The nation of Israel, as you know, came to a place where they wanted a king like all the other nations. Samuel confronted the nation and charged them. And they were all upset. They thought Samuel was all not going to pray for them anymore. And Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord and cease to pray for you. 1 Samuel 12, 23. It's a sin for us not to pray. In fact, prayer is so valuable. So incredibly effective that God's judgment over Israel in the days of Jeremiah was this. Listen carefully. God says three times to Jeremiah, I don't want you to pray for their good. I don't want you to intercede for them anymore. Three times. Jeremiah 7, 16, 11, 14, 14, 11. The only time we read that in the whole Bible. When God removes prayer from a person, they're done. It's absolute judgment. Wow. The person of God petitioned in prayer was the Father. This is not the first time we've seen it. Notice thirdly, the people of God affected by prayer in 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The Apostle Paul is not teaching that everyone on earth is saved and will be in heaven. That's not what he's teaching. Some people take this text and teach that all human beings belong to the fatherhood of God. Therefore, we are all, gonna, we're all saved. We're all children of God and we're all going to be in heaven. No, that's not true. That's wishful thinking. In fact, it's an insult against God. The only common factor of believers and non-believers is that God created all of us. He's the creator. So we have a common creatorhood of man and he is. But the fatherhood of God comes through the new birth. Paul the Apostle in Acts 17.28 he speaks about quoting the prophets of the pagans that uh, he made us all of all one flesh, one blood. We're all tied together as a creator but not as redeemer. The fatherhood of God comes through the new birth. This is called universalism. The world is all into it. They love it. The theology, this theology is proposed by people who call themselves Christians, but they're not. 
You cannot be a Christian and believe that everybody's going to be in heaven. They translate the word whole, every family, making it a plural instead of one entire family, singular. The RSV does that, and there's other translations. That's a horrible translation. There's only one family of God, singular. They expose themselves to be deceivers by the belief of universalism. They oppose the historical orthodox doctrine of Christianity for the last 2,000 years. This theology stands in contradiction to the record of the fall and the need of a redeemer. They deny the holiness and truthfulness of God in Genesis 3. That sin has to be judged because God is holy. They ignore and deny the prophetic promise of the personal Savior to die in the place of sinners in John 3.15, the seed of the woman. This theology is confusion to the testimony of God's distinctions in the whole of Scripture. The special choosing of Israel as his people, his nation, distinct from the pagans. The choosing of a bride by Jesus as his church to be raptured before the seven-year tribulation. There's a distinction from the non-believer. This theology denies the seriousness of sin against God by every human person and calls both the Father and the Son's liars. Denying that all have sin. Denying that the wages of sin is death. Denying the need of repentance through the new birth. Denying there is a heaven and a hell that humanity will go to one or the other. The final abode being Gehenna, the lake of fire. It denies all that. The Apostle Paul is teaching that the family of God resides both in heaven and in earth. That's what this verse teaches. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The statement of identification is the whole family, clearly indicating the family of God. God has made Jew and Gentile one in the family of God, Ephesians 2.14. Both Jew and Gentile created in Christ Jesus one new man, Ephesians 2.15. Reconciled Jew and Gentile in one body, Ephesians 2.16. Both had access to the Father by one spirit, Ephesians 2.18. The reason is they had been saved and all their sins had been forgiven and forgotten by God, Ephesians 2.8.9 and Psalm 103.12. That's how you get into the family of God. You're born into the family of God. The statement of location, notice, is heaven and earth. The simple statement simply indicates that part of the family of God at the present is in heaven, the invisible church. We can't see it, but they're there. Those who were sinners at one time on the earth heard the gospel, repented, 
and became born again. Those who consequently through the new birth were transformed throughout their lives. And those on earth who were witnesses for Jesus and sojourners on earth on their way to heaven. I've been journeying for 42 years on my way to heaven. I'm 42 years closer to heaven. <laughs> Those who came to the end of their lives and were present before God in heaven immediately. That's who these people are. Those in heaven have no need of prayer. They're with God. But while they were on earth, prayer benefited them. But now they're in heaven. You don't pray for the dead. It's contrary to the scripture. Now, as a, as a Catholic, I did. But it's contrary to the scripture. Dead or dead. They're either in a better place or in not so good a place. Now, this also indicates that part of the family of God at the present time is on the earth. The visible church. But even at that point, all that we see as a visible church is not all the church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> all right? Those who in the present generation have repented from their sins and been born again, trusting only the atoning work of Jesus for the righteousness before God. Those who at the present are to be growing, developing, and maturing in their faith, in Christ, prayer being of great benefit at this point. I can pray for you. You can pray for me. We can pray for each other. We can pray about things. Prayer benefits us. It's great for now. Those who at the present are in spiritual warfare and fighting the good fight of faith through prayer, the word, the power of the Holy Spirit with the whole armor and mind of Christ. Those who throughout their lives see themselves as sojourners, pilgrims, who will one day at death join the invisible church in heaven will be instantly present with them. You see, this family, both in heaven and earth, is named after the Father. The father is the one responsible as the source of the family of God in the paternal sense by the new birth. He draws us to the son. He sent the son. The family of God adopts sons and daughters. Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.5, Ephesians 1.5. And the term for adoption that is used in those scriptures, those verses, in the Roman time, it's a phrase that was used that you could adopt anybody you wanted to, and that word for adoption meant that you gave that person the position of a natural-born son, and you could bypass your 15 sons, adopt a perfect stranger, and by adoption, if you bequeath everything to him, he would get everything. That's the word that is used for us as natural sons. What belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Wow. 
the believers were also known as those on the way, if you remember. Christians, first time called that at Antioch, after Barnabas and Paul spent a year there. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Paul persecuted the way, Acts 9-2. He gave witness about the way, 19-9 of Acts 23, 22-4, 24-14, and other places. The way, the way, the way. When we were first born again, um, everybody's born again. We had vans, everybody in the 70s. If you were in the 70s, you had a van, guaranteed. And uh, you're a Christian, you go like this. The way, point up. Now ISIS goes like this. All the Muslims. That means you're Muslim. See? Things change. Ex-pastor Rob Bell of Mars Hills Church in his book, Love Wins, writes about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. He says, hell is what we create for ourselves when we reject God's love. Hell is both a present reality for those who resist God and a future reality for those who die unready for God's love. Hell is what we make of heaven when we cannot accept the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy. But hell is not forever, really. Every sinner will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. There will be no eternal conscience, uh, conscience there, torment, no conscience torment. Uh, God says, no to injustice in the age to come, but he does not pour out wrath. We bring the temporary sufferings upon ourselves, and we certainly, and he certainly does not uh, punish for eternity. In the end, love wins. Really? Wow. What a heretic. You can see him on YouTube. Put him on. Get some darts. Make sure you don't want the computer. Unreal. Deceiver. Brian McLaren, Mark Driscoll, Tony Jones, Tony Campolo, and many others of the Emergent Church. Same thing. If you listen to these guys, what they say, I've got a new documentary I'm going to show you about these guys. They are just too much. I just can't believe how many dumb young people there are. They follow these guys, heretics, deceivers. Complete contradiction of the scriptures. They speak so eloquent and say absolutely nothing. Zippo. They're spiritual politicians. Jesus taught that there is one church and he builds it. Listen to him. And I also say to you that you're, you're Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against you. Matthew sixteen eighteen. It's his church. He builds it. Paul taught there is one body, but many members in one body, the church. Listen. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members have, do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individual members of one another. Romans 12, 3 through 5. Paul taught the Ephesians 
the exact same thing. Listen to Ephesians 4, 5 through 7. There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called, and one hope, and one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Consistent. Good sound theology. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 says that we're one family. The church on earth and in heaven. Listen. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Much of the church is in heaven already. (laughs) The rest will be there soon. The people of God affected by prayers are those gone to heaven and those still on earth. They were affected, then they went to heaven, they don't need prayer. Those left behind still need prayer. And they're benefited by prayer. Paul is pouring out his heart as we're, we're going to see in the next verses about what he wants God to do in and through them to empower them to live the life of Christ. And so this is the introduction of prayer of Paul here, consisting of these three things. The posture before God in prayer is kneeling. The person of God petitioned in prayer is the Father. And the people of God affected by prayer are those gone to heaven and those still on earth. (laughs) It doesn't say we're all going to be saved. Why the gospel then? (laughs) Why the death of Christ? A complete contradiction of so many that want to do that today. They are preaching another gospel. Let them be anathema. The strongest word of damnation in the Greek. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord. and Father, your truth and those things that will stand forever, Lord, regardless whether men believe it or accept it. Lord, help us to draw close to you, to yield to you, to be empowered and enabled by you, Lord, to live this life. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent. Only you can make that decision. God will not force you to go to heaven. God will invite you to go to heaven. The price has been paid. Maybe you're over the internet. If you are, then this is your prayer of repentance. If you want to be born again, right where you sit, this is your prayer to the Lord, and he will forgive you and save you right where you're at right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.